Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a well-known Christmas carol called Away in a Manger, and I think probably all of you here are, are pretty familiar with it. The second stanza of that hymn starts off with the words, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's a nice sentiment, isn't it? Nice, but probably not true. Because we know that when Jesus came to earth, he took on human flesh. He became a human. And if there's one thing that we know about human babies, it's that human babies cry. And this isn't the only sentiment we have in our Christmas carols that isn't necessarily founded in Scripture. We don't actually know that the ox and the donkey bowed down before him, that the snow lay on the ground, or that it came upon a midnight clear. But probably the one thing with the whole nativity account that has the most misconceptions is that of the arrival of these wise men. We have another rather famous Christmas song. It goes by the title, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But what if I was to tell you that the Bible doesn't say there were three of them? The Bible doesn't even tell us that they were kings, and the Bible never says that they were from the Orient. There's not a whole lot that we know about those wise men that came to visit the baby Jesus. But what we do know is that they came to find the one born king. And as we look at the account that God gave us through the holy evangelist Matthew, we'll see that we can learn some very valuable lessons from this. As we look at the account of the wise men, we see that we have a God who seeks all men. And that God also wants all men to seek him. And as we look at the account of the wise men, we see that we have a Savior who is most worthy of our praise. So let's get right into that lesson. You can feel free to follow along in your bulletins if you want. We'll start with the first two verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the Bible may not tell us exactly who these magi were, but we can get a pretty good idea from historical records of the time. We know that the term magi was used to refer to men of high standing who specialized in astrology, dream interpretation, and other various arts of the occult. These were well-learned men that could have come from just about any country in what we know today as the Middle East. We don't know exactly who they were, but we know who Magi were. And probably more familiar to us than the term Magi is that name that we call them today, wise men. And that's traditionally what we've called these visitors from a far-off country. Because if you think about it, they traveled as far as they did following a star that appeared to them in the sky to find this little baby boy 
who turned out to be the savior of the world. And so I think the term wise men is probably a pretty good fit. We know we now have the, the who, but we still need the why. Why would these astrologers from the east be traveling to find this baby boy? And this answer, I think, is actually a lot simpler because God gives it to us in the account of the wise men. We know they were coming because God was leading them. They had that star in the sky, a star that was leading them to the one born king of the Jews. But as you remember hearing pastors say earlier, they, they weren't Jews. So how did they know that that's what this star was leading them to? And maybe they had at some point in their life come into contact with some Jews, or maybe their ancestors had come into contact with Jews. Perhaps some of the Jews who had been carried off into exile either by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. We don't know for sure. We know that while Daniel, the prophet, was in exile in Babylon, he was appointed chief of all of the Magi in Babylonia. And that a man like Daniel and other men like Daniel would certainly have wanted to share what they knew about the coming Messiah with everyone they met. So maybe some of those teachings had passed down from generation to generation, and now these men knew that the star they were following was leading them to the one born king. But regardless of how they knew what the star meant, what we can take away from their coming and from the star appearing to them in the first place is that we have a Savior God who seeks all people. He wasn't looking just to his family, the children of Israel, those that were living in the land of Judea. He wanted to include everyone, even these men from a far-off country. Because God, our Savior, wants all men to be saved. You can see the great lengths he went at to find them. These weren't Jews. They didn't have a perfect grasp on those promises of the coming Messiah. They were astronomers. And so God met them at their level. He gave them a star, a star which then led them to their Savior, Jesus. And while it may not be God's standard operating procedure to bring people to Jesus using astronomical events like the appearance of a new star, it isn't unusual for him to meet us at our level. And in fact, that's what that baby boy that those men were going to see was all about. Because when Jesus came to this earth, he came to meet us at our level. He came to take on our humanity so that he could talk to us face to face and let us know about the plan of salvation that our Father had for us. He came to this earth to meet us at our level so that that plan of salvation could be carried out through him. In our lesson, God sent a shining star to lead those men to Jesus. Today, he's sending you. You and I are little stars of Bethlehem. Sent out to let our light shine in the world as we tell everyone we meet about what God has done for them. Sent out to, to meet them at their level. And so that means we can't just 
build a church building or put some signs out on a street in front of a school gymnasium and expect the world to just come walking in off the street, we have to go and find them. Maybe that means that you invite them, your friends, your family, your co-workers, you invite them to come and, and join us at church. Or it could mean you invite them over to your home where you can share with them there through your, your personal or your family devotions. Maybe it means you invite them to something they're a little more familiar with, a little more comfortable with, like a March break camp or a soccer camp, and then share the Word of God with them while they're there. Whatever the means may be, our task is simple. Go out and tell everyone the good news about that Savior born in Bethlehem. And just as God sought out and found those wise men and brought them to Jesus, just as he sought out and found us and brought us to Jesus, now he's sending you out to find and to seek the lost sheep of, of Mississauga of Canada, of the whole world, and to tell them the glorious news about what Jesus has done for them. But God doesn't stop after just seeking out his people. He doesn't stop just after he finds us and lays claim to us. No, he wants us to keep on going. He wants us to keep on seeking him. And as we keep looking in our account, we'll find out that that's exactly what those wise men did. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them about where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. It seems that Herod and, and these Jews, the leaders of the Jews, hadn't even seen the star. In fact, they didn't even know that the king had been born. What they did know, however, was where he could be found. And they knew that because the answer was in the scriptures. The prophet Micah had foretold that the Messiah was going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. A town that wasn't actually even that far from Jerusalem. So what happened next? Picture the scene. Here, here are all these men coming in from some far-off country, following a star that they say is leading them to the one born king of the Jews, the Messiah, who, as it turns out, according to Scripture, is supposed to be born in a town just 10 kilometers away. I googled Jerusalem to Bethlehem. If you were walking on foot, it would take almost exactly two hours. Ten kilometers. So you would think the party leaving Jerusalem would have been a little bigger than, than the band of wise men that came in earlier that day. You would think that almost all of those chief priests and teachers of the law would run home and grab their sandals and maybe their families and, and join these wise men on their trek over to Bethlehem to, to meet the promised Savior. You would think that, but then you'd be surprised. Matthew records for us what, 
actually took place. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And so as far as we know, the only ones that went out from Jerusalem and on to Bethlehem were the wise men. Yeah, Pharaoh said that he wanted to follow after them, but we find out later that he only wanted to kill the baby Jesus. And not one of those chief priests or elders or teachers of the law is said to have gone along with the wise men. That brings a couple of questions to my mind. The first one is, out of all these characters, who had a better knowledge of the Bible? It certainly wasn't the Magi. If they had such a firm grasp on Scripture, they wouldn't have had to stop in Jerusalem to ask for directions. They would have known that the prophet Micah had said the Savior King would be born in Bethlehem, and in fact, they wouldn't have even needed the star at all. But the chief priests and teachers of the law, on the other hand, knew the Bible back to front. Or at least that was what they said. So then that brings us to my second question, and that's, who had a stronger faith? Was it these chief priests and teachers of the law, these Jews who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but still couldn't find the time of day to go and meet their Savior? Or was it these Gentiles who, who barely knew the Scriptures at all, but were still willing to travel hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles to come and meet him? I think the answer is, is pretty obvious. In his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul tells us that God our Savior wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of of the truth. I'm sorry, in his first letter to Timothy. That knowledge of the truth doesn't simply mean just knowing what all the words in the Bible are. It means having a, a full understanding and trust in what the promises we find in that book mean. Our knowledge of the truth is our trust, our faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. And that isn't something we can get by ourselves just by pouring over the Bible again and again and again. That knowledge, that trust, that faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit, a gift that only God can give. So, how is your knowledge of the truth? Maybe a better question would be, how strong is your faith? Do you find that you're like the wise men? You, you hear and believe and, and are actively seeking your Savior? Or are you maybe more like the Jews who, who just read the Bible every day and maybe, maybe talk about how well they know the Bible, but they don't actually want to actively worship their Savior? We may think we know the Bible pretty well, and on that big church attendance chart next to our name, there might be a big old line of, of shining gold stars. 
But if we actually take a step back and, and look at our lives, we find that there are all kinds of opportunities to, to worship our King. All kinds of opportunities for us to be shining stars that we allow to just slip right on past. Our knowledge of the truth is somewhat lacking. And our faith is, is anything but perfect. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's only one place to go to increase your knowledge of the truth. Only one way that you can strengthen your faith. There's only one place to seek your Savior. And it's right here in the pages of this book. As we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit builds us up and strengthens our faith. And that's not something to just take for granted. We want to study God's Word with that in mind. So as you sit down at home to do your personal devotion, or as you sit down in these chairs on a Sunday morning to begin with worship, start off with a prayer to God. Asking Him that, that as we hear and we meditate and we study on His Word, we don't just increase our knowledge of what the words in this book say, but we're impacted by it, that we're drawn closer to our Savior Jesus. And that our trust in the promises we hear in this book increases. That our faith grows. God promises that that is exactly what He will do. When God blesses our study of His Word, we're going to find the same thing that those wise men found as they studied the Word made flesh in that home in Bethlehem. We're going to find that the Savior we find is worthy of our praise. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. The wise men came and worshipped Jesus. Worship. Now there's a word that we use an awful lot. But what exactly does it mean? I think if you went out onto a street corner and just asked people walking by what they thought worship means, you'd get an awful lot of interesting answers. Some might say going to church. Some might say singing or, or praying or maybe just just trying to be good as much of the time as you can, I think you'd get all kinds of different ideas. The wise men had it pretty well figured out. They certainly were wise men. They must have been wise to understand that this little baby boy in front of them was better and greater than they were. To understand that this was someone before whom they should bow down and humble themselves. Someone they could worship as God Almighty. Someone before whom they should lay out the very best of what they had and give Him gifts as they worshipped Him. So, how do we worship? Do we bow down showing humility to God? Or do we sometimes in our lives place ourselves or, or our needs before Him? Do we worship Him as 
God Most High? Or do we treat him as though he's kind of a nobody and, and sometimes convince ourselves that he doesn't actually know what we're doing? Do we give him the very best of everything that we have to offer, whether it's our, our time and our services or our, our talents, our treasures? Or do we sometimes keep that for ourselves instead of giving it freely back to him? If we take a look at our lives, which are supposed to be lives of worship, can we truthfully say to ourselves that we are being wise men and wise women? Today marks the beginning of the church season of Epiphany. And maybe besides worship, Epiphany is another word that some of us might be a little rusty on. If I say, I've had an Epiphany... It means something has occurred to me. Something has been revealed to me. And the day of Epiphany is this day that we celebrate Jesus the Savior being revealed to those wise men. The season of Epiphany is a time that we can thank God for revealing Jesus Christ to each and every one of us. That Jesus who, who came down to make himself at our level. And he did that so that he could reveal to us God's plan of salvation, so that that plan of salvation could be carried out through him as he lived the perfect life for us and then died the perfect death for us, so that that barrier of sin, which keeps us from connecting to God, which prevents us from worshiping him as we should, is taken away. Because when Jesus took our sins on himself to the cross, he gave us something back. He gave us his perfection, his righteousness, a righteousness and perfection with which we can now come to God freely with full confidence and worship him like we're supposed to worship him. Worshiping him like the wise men worshiped, humbly acknowledging him as God most high and, and giving him everything that he deserves, the very best of what we have. We worship him because he gave us the very best that he had. He gave us his son, Jesus, and through Jesus he gave us salvation. He came to earth, God most high, came down to earth and humbled himself to become a crying little baby human boy. And he did that so that he could give his life up for us on the cross to win us the most precious gifts of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. He sought us out and gave us a faith that seeks him. A faith which leads our hearts to confess that, that we cannot help but give our Savior praise. Praise be to Jesus Christ, the one born King. Amen. Now may the peace which transcends understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord unto life everlasting. Amen.